0: Welcome, everyone. On this week's episode, Tim and I answer all of your questions about pain and training submitted by you. We received quite a few questions, so thank you very much. We tackled your questions with all of our might to provide you answers about Tim's hip pain status, Tim's pain management strategies, what books we recommend related to Season 3's theme, how to evolve your model, our thoughts about common three-letter acronym systems, and our own struggles working with persistent paying clients. Thanks again to all the listeners who provided questions. Tim and I hope you enjoy the show as much as we enjoy recording it. So while you're at it, go ahead and leave a five-star review on the pod player of your choice. Doing so will let us continue to devote time to the show for many more seasons to come. So, without further ado, here is this week's Q and A episode.
1: I'm Tim Richart,
0: and I'm Michelle Bolin,
1: and you're listening to the More Train, Less Pain podcast.
2: More train, less pain. So, Tim, we got some questions on Instagram from people. Wanting us to give the deepest, most intellectual answers to them on this podcast. This is highly high-level Q&A here. And the first one is actually just directed towards you, which I'm a little jealous of, but can't wait. The first question is, where is Tim in his own journey with persistent hip pain? What changes has he made to his overall management strategy? Whew, long-winded here as a result of concepts he's learned over
1: the past few months. All right. Well, welcome everyone (laughs) (laughs) to another exciting episode of more train, less pain. Um, I appreciate everybody that put questions into Instagram. I know me and Michelle got a bunch and we did our best to kind of condense them into some unifying themes. And I especially appreciate the, you know, this person's interest with, Kind of my own struggles with hip pain and potential surgery, and kind of everything that's that's formed the impetus for a lot of the discussions that Michelle and I have had this season. Um, I would say, from a psychological standpoint, uh, I'm I'm really really good with kind of what I have in front of me. i um, we're recording this in. Um, early December, so I'm about a month out from going to Indianapolis for three months to kind of learn from Bill Hartman and also work with him as a patient and I'm pretty optimistic that we're going to be able to change some stuff. And hopefully that's going to be enough that I can get back to doing things like backcountry skiing and hiking and running. Um, if not, I've kind of you know ironed out some of the surgical options that would that would come after the foremost being something called a periacetabular osteotomy. So kind of like reorienting the direction that the hip socket is facing. And that has a pretty good, pretty good outcomes there. And if that were to fail, then a total hip replacement would be on the table. So kind of best case scenario going out to bill and, um, kind of getting sorted out enough that I can get back to doing everything, hopefully with no pain, but I'll take like, you know, minimal to moderate pain. Um, And then even the worst case scenario really doesn't seem that bad. It's like, you know, go out, learn a bunch, maybe even have an unsuccessful surgery. But I think eventually I I really like my odds of being able to get back to doing the things that that I'm trying to do. So that's kind of, it's a bit of a mixed bag. Like I wish I could say that uh, everything was all better, but really it's been, I think for me, a lot of this journey has been about being content where I currently am. And with the activities that are available to me, um, I've never been a better climber than I am now. Like, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm trying to push for lead climbing 12s, which a couple of years ago, I I, I never really would have dreamed of. And I love the crew of people that I, I'm able to climb with. So it's like there's there's still a bunch of stuff like I, I still train six days a week. Um, it sucks for sure. And it's probably the m- most important thing in my life that I'm actively working to change. But I think uh, the episode with Sam Leffers, I forget which episode number, but I think episode four or five, we talked a lot about trying to remove urgency in these persistent pain situations. I also think Seth did a really nice job about uh, schooling us with chronic versus persistent pain. And I've been trying my best to use persistent pain when possible. (laughs) Um, But one of Sam's big things was in persistent pain, the importance of removing the need to change it like right this second and being able to find stability and a modicum of peace and stillness with where you are. And I think that it's been a rough journey to get here, but I've been able to get here and it, you know, it, I don't wake up every morning thinking like, oh my God, this has to be changed by, by noon. And I think that's been really helpful in enabling me to stay, fairly sane and fairly happy and fairly centered um you know throughout the past year or two when this really has been has been quite an issue i don't know does that does that all make sense
2: oh i had the mute button on right there (laughs) um yeah that makes perfect sense um i think this season has been awesome for the both of us i think we've learned a lot and uh have been able to apply it and you especially like directly into your situation. And you talk a lot about John Pope and the Sam episode. Um, How have you related what you've learned to maybe some of your current clients, maybe conversations or strategies that you've had with them? I think
1: something that comes up because we've talked about this, like attracts like. When I was a runner, i worked with mainly runners. And now, you know, as a, somewhat aging athlete in persistent pain, I seem seem to be attracting more and more of that. And that's okay. Um, A conversation I feel like I have a lot with my patients is, and this is something that I stole from John Pope, but this concept of like, it's okay that you're in pain. Everybody's in some amount of discomfort. And the thing doesn't start when you're better or when you're out of pain. Because being like completely better or completely out of pain probably isn't the goal anyway. So it's this, how do we continue to exist in this middle ground of I'm in some discomfort um, and that's okay. And I want to do things to reduce the amount of discomfort that I'm in. I want to do things to reacquire freedom of movement and comfort of movement so that when I get into the gym or when I do my sport or activity of choice, I can hit the positions I need to hit. Um... But it's okay like we don't we don't shut things down because we have you know four out of ten elbow pain before a climbing session we warm up we go through our mobility stuff and even if that four out of ten pain still is there which it's highly unlikely it's going to be that bad once you go through some movement stuff it's like, okay can we can we climb easy and okay if we have to take a an off day can we do some other stuff so i, I think really always trying to find a way around a way to acknowledge their discomfort their pain to give validity to what they're experiencing but to also continue to support them in walking this path of an active lifestyle and one of self-efficacy
2: i like that a lot um i was just in a business course and of course with like a lot of sales it's all about making promises like, hey, I will get to the root cause of your pain. That's why I'm different. And of course, you know, I don't take everything that I hear um, fully. I kind of try to put it in context. And it's it's definitely this battle as a professional and someone who owns their own business to navigate that world of I will solve things, I will fix things. We will remove that pain versus maybe an Advantage I have is I see people more longer term and they don't maybe see me as the fixer of that problem that they have. But the idea that everyone is in some sort of discomfort and pain is something that probably makes people settle and feel, okay, like you're right. And especially if you tell like a certain story or relate it to a certain client, uh, another client You know, they, you just have to keep moving. And one of my favorite quotes from you actually is, uh, I think it's in the Tony Jenicore episode is you basically say like the biggest lesson from like adult life is that you just have to keep plugging away. And that's something that I've kind of said to a lot of my clients recently. It's like, it's all about consistency and you're most of the time being an adult, you kind of just feel okay and try to get through the day, but that's all it is, especially if you relate that to pain, it's like, you just have to keep moving forward. And usually that's has a lot of positive outcomes.
1: Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I, I really, going back to the sales thing that you mentioned, that's the one, cause I've taken a lot of, you know, PT entrepreneur business coursework in my eight or nine years of doing this. That's the one thing I can never get behind is the whole like, I will fix your pain. Like this Mm -hmm. will be gone. Cause it's, I I mean, I'll call it what I think it is. I think it's dishonest. I think that's false certainty. And I think that false certainty is probably one of the biggest disservices that a healthcare provider or like a movement professional can give to someone. Um, this is a, I mean, not to jump too radically, but we're going to talk about kind of recommended books and and things that keep coming up in these conversations. But um, especially with a lot of people that have trained under Bill Hartman, the book "Thinking in Bets" by Annie Duke, and I, I know like Peter Atia is a big fan of this book as well. But essentially, it's a book on probabilistic thinking, and this notion mm-hmm. that like no one's ever sure of anything. Like everything is always just probabilities, and to me, that's improved my own sense of sanity and well-being with what I do with people because, I mean, if you're guaranteeing that you're going to get people better, what happens when they don't? Like, does that mean that you're bad at what you do? It certainly means that you were dishonest in your certainty. Um, But I think that that notion of probabilistic thinking of saying, okay, you know, I'm 80% certain that these are the things that are impacting your pain to some degree. And I think we can intervene on them to some degree. And I think it's really, really good odds that we can get you feeling better. But we never know with 100% certainty. Like to me, people are smarter than you give them credit for, like especially that a lot of like sales oriented training gives people credit for. And I Mm -hmm. think that people can sniff out the lack of authenticity in the whole, like, follow me and you'll lose 30 pounds in three months. It's like people just kind of know by virtue of the thing, like it's not gonna, and maybe they, maybe they like uh, emotionally commit to it or something, but um yeah that's that's certainly that's been that, that's something that's just been top of mind like the the utility of probabilistic thinking and kind of conveying things to patients and clients in a more honest and upfront way
2: yeah it's the uh, the quick diagnosis and the quick promises um, that you kind of have to steer away from um you just gave your answer to the next question <laughs> the second question we got was what books do you find are most recommended amongst your guests And you just nailed off one of them, thinking in bets.
1: I think that was my only contribution to that question. So I want to hear what you have to say to this. I know. So you're done. All right. So I have three. And so the Lucy Hendricks episode,
2: I don't know if it's going to come before or after this, but I was basically talking to her on the phone today. (laughs) She was talking to me about two books. Um, One is I Hear You, The Surprisingly Simple Skill Behind Extraordinary Relationships. Um, and then the second one is how to listen, hear, and validate, break through invisible barriers and transform your relationships. And basically, her point is we need to look beyond. The physical and uh, biomechanics. Trying to just learn more and more and more about biomechanics, we need to gain other skills that can impact uh, persistent pain clients. And the biggest thing that she's taken away from these books is how improving upon every relationship, just how to navigate, you know, a spousal relationship, a friend relationship, helps you translate. That and gaining those skills to your clients, and so those were two big ones.
1: It, it is interesting, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of um, as you kind of dive deeper into that world, I'm very interested to see what what you pick up and what you begin to apply. But there, in our field, I've been thinking about this a lot. There's this tension between almost like movement optimism, like everything's going to be okay. We just need to have a positive attitude about movement and exercise and pure biomechanics where it's like the position of everything matters. Mm-hmm. And I think that either one of those camps taken to an extreme gets really silly really quick, probably especially the movement optimism because I've, I've, I've experienced being too far in that direction. Um, so to me, you know, when I hear you talk about both of those books, it's like I, I think those go more in that movement optimism direction or at least like the it was like the connection between practitioner and client type of direction. And I do think especially because we we know the audience of this podcast is usually like younger therapists and coaches. That is something that doesn't get enough play because everybody wants to learn how to trap our deadlift or have a swinging kettlebell, all the exciting stuff. Of course. And I
2: do want to give um, David Gray a shout out because we both um, have dived into his DGR Was it integrative um, platform? And he just the way he breaks down content, I think, is better than anyone else.
1: Yeah, he's I mean, he's hands down my most recommended practitioner for young therapists looking to learn a biomechanical model. Cause it just seems yeah. like it's been very durable over the, over the past few years. Like I've, I mean, I've been a fan of his for probably five or six years at this point and I've seen evolution for sure, but it doesn't seem like these giant phasic shifts that some other people have had where it's just like, it's, it's been fairly consistent and there's some nitpicky things that I, I might not agree with, but like by and large, I just think it's incredibly solid biomechanics. It's very approachable. Um, the Irish King.
2: Yeah. Perfect. And the last book that I'm going to recommend is one that is coming out probably 2024, January, February. It is uh I wrote an ebook. It's now 15 pages. It's in the editing process right now. It's probably <laughs> going to be a little bit more. But I basically compiled all of the lessons I've learned from our guests and doing this season of More Train, Less Pain. And I've broken it down into, it's called reframe performance. What an epic name that is. Fantastic (laughs) name. Yeah. Uh, Four simple ways to keep your clients working out even when they are in pain. And so I basically took four lessons that I've taken from the season. I have quotes from our guests and I've kind of just compiled like a summary of what I learned and maybe ways in which to help other trainers implement those lessons in the training setting
1: it's like a it's like a tools of titans for more train less pain seriously though i know yeah n- now that we've gotten to a uh, listenership fairly equivalent to tim ferris we're going to start doing tim ferris stuff
2: yeah we just got to get them up behind the paywall now <laughs>
1: that's, that's 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 i'm i'm excited to read that
2: perfect good i'm glad i've working yeah. on it for a while and i think it's kind of good to like summarize the season like I have all these notes from each guest because I listen to the podcast just like a fan of a podcast. Like I write down notes from people and I try to like think about it a little bit more like how I can get better at this, especially from like the Doug episode you did. I just like loved his perspective on things. And Sam too um, was a little bit different. Okay.
1: For, for Third sure. Question? Yeah, I think so.
2: Third question. How do you think about continuing to treat and train clients while simultaneously attempting to evolve your professional model?
1: We'll be back to the show in just a minute. One of the big themes of this show is the importance of continued development if you're a trainer or therapist. If you listen to Michelle and I, chances are you're not the type of practitioner to take everything they learn during school at face value. You're curious, hungry, driven, and want to be the best you can be for both your clients and yourself. However, Instagram scrolling and taking weekend courses with three letter acronyms will only take you so far. You need a mentor, someone to help you make sense of what you've learned, the habits you've developed as a practitioner, and where your knowledge or application gaps may be. I can say for certain that I've had the good fortune of standing on the shoulders of some giants in our field Lance Goyke, Zach Couples my now co-host Michelle and Bill Hartman, to name a few. More than explicit knowledge, what I gained is a framework of how to take in new information, process and reflect, and iterate continuously, something that a three-letter acronym course won't be able to teach you. As such, it's my pleasure to act as a mentor for clinicians and trainers like can add more structure to their clinical development. Over the course of four 50-minute long sessions, we'll dive into your model, poke and prod for areas of cognitive bias, and assemble the scaffolding for shaping your continual development as a clinician. If this sounds like something that'd be of value to you, shoot me a DM at Tim DPT on Instagram, and include what you'd like help in making sense of. Now, back to the show. Okay. So here, I think this is an excellent question, by the way. And this is something (laughs) that, uh, shout out to Margaret Randolph. She's the owner of Ethos Colorado Training Center, where my physical therapy practice is located. Her and I talk about this constantly. Um, And so I've just, it's, it's been sort of top of mind. But I think that if you're in the business of working with people, which if you're listening to this podcast, you probably are, you should always be attempting to learn and improve your model and how you interact with people. Um, that's kind of non-negotiable, like at some level that that needs to be done. There there should be probably a process of reflection. Seth Oberst did a really nice job talking about this in the most recent episode. So let's call that like, let's call where you are 1.0 and you're like kind of learning your model 2.0, right? You could like currently treat at 1.0 and you're, and you're learning some stuff and eventually you're going to implement this 2.0 model. Mm-hmm. I think when you're in that process, you probably treat people at like, Model 1.2 or 1.3, like things that are just beyond what you have been doing, um, Mm -hmm. but you don't throw the entire, you don't chuck the baby out with the bathwater. You don't upend everything to do everything per this new model. Like, Like you have to make small iterative changes when it comes to what you're actually doing with your people. And probably the longer that you're doing this, the slower that process gets to be. And I think there's an interesting middle ground between the model that you treat and train off of and then the model that you're learning. And that will be kind of the model that you train yourself at or like you experiment with things with your own body at. So if you're, you know, you're at 1.0, you're learning 2.0, you decide to like start treating at like 1.3, 1.4. I think you can train yourself at like 1.7, 1.8. You can take, you can be a little bit more experimental because the downside of things not working on you is going to be lower. And I, that's helped me kind of stay sane and, uh, to use your word, reframe, like this this process of professional development in a really useful way, that it doesn't have to be like, learn everything and now apply everything. It can be like, learn everything and apply it bit by bit and then experiment a little bit more with your own training. And I just, for a lot of people that I do uh, like professional mentorship with, I think this has helped them to sit with what they know for a little bit longer versus like, I've, you know, I took two weekend seminars. Now I want to, I want to do everything according to that system. Uh, What do you think about that?
2: Yeah, I agree. Um, I did like when Seth talked about just being honest with clients, Hey, I learned this. Do you mind if we kind of try this out? I think most people would be a little taken back by that. Like as a trainer saying that, because we want to like, exude confidence in what we're doing um but the training yourself a little bit more experimental at that higher 1.8 as you referred to it model kind of allows you to take that on for yourself before you kind of go into the the client realm so i think that's a great strategy um versus maybe involving the the client if you're not like quite comfortable with it but i think that's a great analogy that you did
1: I like that. And I think um, Bill Hartman had an email recently, like to his list, it was something talking about, I forget what the term was, like movement empathy or movement sympathy or something. But essentially, like you become a better coach when you can start to feel what your clients might be feeling. And the only way that you get there is to like do mobility stuff on your own, do training stuff on your own and expose yourself to a wide variety of says, And I think over the past couple of years, what I've gotten really, really good at is like training through persistent pain and and, and it's like kind of trying to feel like, okay, is this more, is this something that we can kind of push a little bit more? Is this something that we have to, you know, withdraw slightly from, but navigating that, um, and I again it's like it's it's almost just a non-negotiable thing that if you're a physical therapist or you're a coach, you're a trainer, you gotta have your own movement practice. Like you got you got to have a movement language that you can Draw upon, especially if the bulk of what you do is online, like you got to do some in person. And yeah. if you're only in person as training yourself, then you really have to be dialed into that in order to convey something that's happening in the physical world in, you know, more of a two dimensional world.
2: Yes, absolutely. And actually, I come up with cues all the time based on what I'm feeling and what I'm messing around with in my own training. And I kind of say those things to my clients and a lot of it like works really well. Um, I even gave like a few clients a a new cue I was thinking about in relation to a split, split squat the other day. And I was like, yeah, it allows me to still be learning through like what I'm doing, what my body's feeling. Okay, number four. Question number four, geez, Tim, you're killing it over here. Tim has alluded to meditation, breath work, and deliberate cold heat exposure in episodes and social media. Where do these um, modalities fit in within the more trained, less pain, extended universe?
1: Again, thank you to whoever asked this question. Um, I won't talk too long about it. I, I think probably meditation is the big thing that's come up with a lot of guests this season. I think for me personally, it's been a really useful exercise. And so a full transparency, I use the, the waking up app. Uh, we're not affiliated in any way, but I think Sam Harris put together a really good product. Um, but more and more i've just found myself using like the meditation timer on the app which is just like it gives you like a gong sound every 5 minutes it just lets you know time is passing cuz the timer like if you set a 20 minute timer on your phone a lot of times at minute 8 you're like shit did i like did i forget to press start on this thing um <laughs> so i think the meditation timer is very useful but more and more i i find myself just kind of like sitting in silence for anywhere from like 6 to 21 minutes depending on what the demands of the morning and i think for me the way that my brain works is I think a thing, or I feel a thing, and then I tend to do a thing, right? So it's like this stimulus response, stimulus response, stimulus response. And Sam and I talked about this in our episode earlier this season. I think what meditation is really good at is attempting to unpair that stimulus response relationship. And even like Bill Hartman, who I would not, you know, he's not like a, a Eastern philosophy type of individual, uh, reference. His own meditative practice is something that he finds incredibly useful. And it's kind of like the same thing, just 10 minutes of observing thoughts and letting them go. I think for people in persistent pain, this becomes a really important skill because your body is going to send you a bunch of signals that it doesn't like the current position that you're in or the current movement that you're doing. And a lot of those signals, not saying that they're not important, but they're not things that you should deal with right then. Right. If you're like right now, I'm sitting and recording this podcast with you. My hip is like a four out of 10 pain. It would be if I got up and moved, then I'd be no longer recording a podcast. So a lot of it just has to do with like, okay, I acknowledge that I'm feeling that. Now I'm just moving on with the next thing. And I think that meditation just has a tremendous power to engender that type of skill in people if they're in a place to receive that type of thing. I mean, I think all my friends that are like in their mid twenties that have tried meditation are like, eh, it's not, I can't do it. I suck at it. And Sam and I talked about this a lot, but it's like the whole, I suck at meditation thing. It's like, yeah, that's, it's the exact thing that you need then.
2: Yeah. I did like when Seth was talking about, it's just intent is the only thing that matters. Like for me, I like movement meditation. Um, going, I go out for a daily walk, um, multiple times a day, probably anywhere from ten to thirty minutes, and to me, that's my time. I don't really listen to anything. I kind of try to look up at the trees, take a few deep breaths, and um, just kind of observe like what's happening to me in the moment. Um, trail running for me is the same thing. I never listen to music, and I'm always just like smiling at how like beautiful the woods are and taking in the moment. Um, modern wisdom the podcast i don't know if you listen to that uh sam harris was on a few weeks ago and he talked about just just acknowledging small moments is a form of meditation right just sitting here on the podcast being like wow i'm really enjoying this conversation with tim this is great looking around the room and just being aware of this individual moment is is like having those frequently throughout the day as much as you can is a form of that.
1: Yeah, I think that's really useful. I would also say, and this is this is a Sam Harris concept, um, there's a lot of meditative practices that emphasize sort of like de-identification. So it's like you, like in a, like a, in a really common sense, uh, someone comes in with like persistent pain for 10 or 20 years and they're basically like they are their back pain or they are their mm-hmm. neck pain it's like i i i am i am this person with pain and i think that the next step back from that is i am a person who is currently suffering from this pain and that's that's a that's a fairly profound reframe when you understand mm-hmm. like those two sentences and how that very like minor structural change kind of changes everything because it's like you're not like you're you're not just your neck pain you're you're everything and you happen to be experiencing neck pain but it doesn't take away of the everything else-ness of your you know of your existence and then i think meditation gets into an interesting place when you realize like um like i think what they're trying to guide people towards with a lot of more like eastern traditions is the sense that like you're not even the thing that's experiencing that unpleasant experience. Like you're, you're like, you're just part of consciousness at large. And I think like, that's where it might be a bridge too far for me to be useful to like actually recommend it to clients, but there is something there. It's like, you know, you, you think that you're, you know, your unique circumstance matters so much, but you're really just part of this larger thing. And this larger thing generally kind of wants you to succeed. Like there's a general goodness to the universe, but Again, that gets that gets a little out there for me. I do think the de-identification aspect of that is very, very important, though. And I think a lot of times, like when my symptoms have been most flared up, kind of being able to nestle into the whole like, no, no, I'm like, I'm I'm Tim. I'm still Tim. I provide value to patients and I like learning about concepts and I love my friends and my family. And I also happen to have this hip issue and that sucks, but it's not all there is. that.
2: what about breathwork, cold, heat?
1: Um, breath work. I won't, I, I kind of feel like out of my depth talking about it, that might be a season four topic because I'm, I'm starting to learn a little bit more about that. Uh, I do think cold and heat have been big changes for me over the past six months. So deliberate cold exposure, a couple mornings a week, I go sit in a tub of like 36 degree water for anywhere from like three to five minutes. It's chilly. Amazing. Um and then a couple nights a week I'll go sit in a sauna that's about like 195 degrees. I think that the cold for me uh has more a lot more psychological benefits than physiologic ones. I think it's there's a lot of moments in life where you kind of want to take like the easy way out, like you want to take like the path of comfort. And I think the second that I'm standing on top of that tub of cold water before I've like put my body in there. It's all of those thoughts magnified by a hundred. So it's just like getting into that habit of, it doesn't matter. I'm going to do this thing because this thing is good for me. This thing is like adaptive to my long-term goals. I think going through that process on a regular basis in a really like physiologic kind of way seems Mm -hmm. to be very, very useful. And it's something that I kind of look forward to, uh continuing i also think metabolically it's like my activity level is the lowest that it's probably ever been in my adult life and i'm still fairly lean so I, I do think there's there's something to uh like the thermic effect of your body having to heat itself up after getting really really cold the only thing i'll say about sauna like you know i, I think people that are smarter than me for sure have talked a lot about like the health benefits peter atia ronda patrick um something that isn't really talked about is uh, like as a form of social connection so like i go to a place that has a sauna and i have a couple friends that i sauna with and you're in there and it's just a hot room and if you brought your phone in your phone would melt and if you had airpods in they would melt so it's just like you have to just like sit with people and just kind of shoot the shit and i really think in 2023 like that's a forgotten skill and it's like there's definitely physiologic things happening for sure but i also think it's just like it's this nice low stress form of connection and for me it's like really deepened my relationship to the people in my life i do that with or i'll even i'll go alone and it's just like okay now you're chatting with a stranger for 20 minutes yeah i
2: think it's peter Peter Atia who talks about this it's like how many of those things can you stack like together so like if you're doing something positive uh, like heat or cold exposure and you add social connection to it it's like a two-tier thing and then if you add something else it's like a three-tier thing so it's kind of like combining all those things that give you energy and kind of rejuvenate you uh, and add them all together i think it's peter (laughs) who talks about that
1: I think it's interesting you bring that up because I I was going to mention this with the answer to the first question, but I find like the thing that I never need any motivation to do is like the body weight strength training that I do, which is like four Mm -hmm. days a week. Like there's no like that's so deeply ingrained in me at this point. There's no I probably don't even need music, but like I look forward to it. I enjoy it. Everything else that I do now has such a strong social component. And I think that's been tremendously helpful for me in 2023. Like I climb with people. I do cardio like incline treadmill or stationary biking with people. My deliberate cold and heat is with people walks are with people. And like, that's, I do miss kind of like, you know, more of what you're doing these days, like, you know, being alone and going for long runs through the mountains. But I think especially in times of duress or high stress, having these active practices that also tie in social connection, there's so some, there's something so fundamentally human about that.
2: Yeah, and especially when we talk about persistent pain clients, there's a lot of people who feel lonely out there, and then that could really help with maybe some symptoms.
1: For sure. I mean, like the classic example of like a runner that can't run anymore and their entire life, their entire social life was kind of around. Like I, saw, I remember my parents struggling with this or my dad, like when he was in his 40s and couldn't run anymore. and. You know, he struggled with it for a few years Then he reinvented himself as his hiker and started like leading hikes. And I think eventually most people find their way to a different activity. And then you realize that like 85% of the value of the first thing was the social connection, the community, like all of the things that didn't really directly tie, like it could have been anything. It could have been a ping pong club, you know?
2: <laughs> yes. Great, great example. Okay. So question five. What are Tim and Michelle's current thoughts on common three letter acronym systems, FMS, PRI, FRC, and DT?
1: I mean, I have I have some I would be curious to get your thoughts on this, because I think you and I are kind of both in a similar place with biomechanical education probably right now. But I, Mm -hmm. I again, like I cannot speak highly enough about what David Gray is doing because i just it totally exists outside of any of these acronyms it's totally his own thing and it's just it's very honest and approachable and it doesn't have i won't say which of these acronyms i learned from first but i really felt like because they were trying to so hard to make it a commercial success the things that were being taught at the weekend seminar were already like 3 or 4 years old And what I really like about what David Gray is doing on like DGR Interactive is like he's updating that stuff every week, like nothing like he's not afraid to be like, oh, I think like doing a foot pronation drill this way is now going to work a little bit better. Um, And he acknowledges his own growth over the past few years. And to me, that's it's such a more intellectually honest way to try to cobble together a system of biomechanical analysis than saying like, okay, I'm going to sit down and create this random acronym system. And this is the source of truth, which if you know anybody that actually like teaches any of these acronym courses, it's like, that's not how they treat. Like it influences it for sure, but they're, they're good individual practitioner practitioners. They're not just like purely that, that system. I know you're going to have a lot of thoughts on this, Michelle.
2: (laughs) Yeah. They're just adjunct teachers. Like, you know, I, if I was teaching a, a physiology class, I'd probably teach it one way, but if I'm teaching it for a university, they're going to make, make me teach it another way. Um, yeah, it's just the same things like you can't be polarized by something. You can't take any of these courses and then a few years later say that they were worthless because you're dead wrong because they, they make you who you are for the better or worse, and then... You can't go to the courses and then just kind of like what you said, become a salesperson for them. That's all you do and let, let that consume you. I think it's a process over a career that I don't think you can take steps to avoid. I think you have to go through it. You have to dive into these systems. And one of the best things that they do is they actually make you know step by step process uh, um, something to follow because the academic system doesn't do that. Um, So I think PRI was so impactful for me, um, especially coming out of the academic center. They don't give you a model to follow. You know, it's important to have one. So you kind of just get dumped into chaos and these kind of pull you back in a little bit. And then I think there's a process of failing, succeeding, and then learning lessons from that where you can actually then determine what's useful within those things and what's not useful, and it's okay to kind of just push things away. Um, so, no, I don't have attachment to any of those. Um, I would never say anything bad about those systems because I think they're all useful in some way. And I'm very happy that I went through all those. And I did go through phases where I thought certain systems were basically what I did and what I solely really use from. And I wouldn't take that away. Um, and I still send Tell people, hey, if you want to learn about PRI, I think you should go to the direct source of that. Go take a PRI course. If you want to learn Bill Hartman's model, go to Bill Hartman. Like, that's where you, that's where people, I think, make the the most mistakes with that.
1: I, I think I want to give two shout outs to two. I mean, one's, one's a system for sure. One's just a, a friend of yours that's hopefully going to be a, a guest on this podcast sometime soon. But um, the first, uh, I think what the FMS did with the SFMA, at least when when I experienced it, like when I went through that was... I think the notable thing was not the direct content, but it was the concept of we have Mm -hmm. these large movements and we can break them down into smaller movements and keep reducing them until we get to the joint level. And then we try to figure out what's happening at that level and then we put it back together. And I think for me, that was just like it was so logical compared to what I was being taught in undergrad and and physical therapy school, which was kind of like for Achilles tendinopathy, we do X, Y, and Z Um, that, you know, you, you kind of like, I can't understate the impact that that had on me learning it. circle like 2011 or 2012. It was just like, it was a, a totally different framework. And I think along those same lines, what Pat Davidson did with rethinking the big patterns was was similar in my mind it was just like okay we have these you know families of movements within these families we have these specific patterns and then we have like stances within those patterns and i think that i think he calls it like a taxonomy but that um mm-hmm. strategy of like being a little bit more categorical and you're thinking about exercise and stance selection and planes of movement i think that's like that plus that SFMA framework really should exist in some kind of like PT school education or strength conditioning coach education.
2: Uh, 100%. The thought process and framework that those gave you, even the FMS, like if something's not looking good, the split squat's not looking and it hurts a little bit, here are some things we can maybe try and then, hey, does it look better or does it not? um just that that thought process itself pat will be on for sure we'll,
1: we'll get him on <laughs> give me i'm i'm curious what's what's one thing that you feel like you still use on a regular basis from pri like i know for for me it's like i don't really coach exhalations that much anymore um but i probably still talk about hip shifting with m- most of my clients I know, like, I mean, I'll, I'll hip shift people to the right all the time. It's not always left hip shifting. But I think, like, drills like that, positions like that, for me, it's like, oh, I, I wouldn't have put this together had it not been for, you know, the um, metric fuck ton of PRI coursework I took from, like, 2013
2: <laughs> to 2017. Um, the frontal plane stacking, maybe? Making oh, sure good. everything lines up. We will be back after this quick message. The biggest struggles trainers and rehab professionals have with building and scaling their online training programs, attracting remote fitness clients, and maintaining communication is having quality videos that provide exercise technique and coaching instruction. Well, now you can stop searching the internet. You will never find them unless you go to Michelle dot trainingcom for the best exercise database on the internet. Imagine all of the funny looks your programs get when clients are trying to figure out what an exercise on their training program is instead of having clear instruction. Gain access to over 1,500 exercise videos, coaching tutorials, and hundreds
0: of positional instructional videos to send to your remote clients with the new digital format of the MBT exercise database. You will not find a contralateral reach walking lunge, a military crawl designed for posterior expansion, or a frontal plane hip-shifting med
2: ball slam on YouTube or anywhere else for that matter. The new database dropped in 2021 and hundreds of fitness and rehab professionals Use it to easily build out their online training programs
0: with built-in buttons to insert the videos into personalized training programs or to use videos to send to their rehab patients
2: for at-home homework. The database will transform your training business by drastically improving scalability, improving communication with clients, and teaching them proper technique from afar. If you don't believe me, Dr. Pat Davison said, and I quote, This database is a goldmine for coaches who care about executing movements for athletes that can legitimately impact sports performance and health. So head over to Michelle dot trainingcom to learn more. And now, back to the show. Um, I think that was super useful. Um <laughs> I remember going to their cervical course and being like, did I just go to like an astrology course? Like I'll just never use any of that stuff.
1: I'm I'm, I'm an Aquarius. Is that?
2: (laughs) But what all all this stuff reminds me, and this is great why I have my computer up because I know exactly where they are. My two favorite quotes. One is by a season two guest that we had, Lee Taft. He said, you want to have the knowledge to be able to recognize when you need that knowledge. And that's what all like the systems, I think, do. Um, where You have to have the knowledge of where you need to pick and choose from. Um, and then the second one is by none other than Neil deGrasse Tyson. I guarantee you that the most important moments of your life are decided not by what you know, but how you think. And that goes back to having a, just a thought process or framework to, to kind of move around from.
1: I like that. I think what both of those make me think of is this is what I was alluding to when I first answered this, which like I think that you and I biomechanically are probably in really similar places right now where it's like we're learning a little bit, but a lot of it is taking what we have learned and attempting to prune it and shape it in a way that seems useful and most coherent with what seems to be working with us and with our clients. And I, this is something that David Gray has talked about recently on his podcast. Just this, like for for him, he feels like his biggest uh, like area of professional growth, like length of time of professional growth, was two years where he decided he wasn't gonna like like look at any uh, like physical therapy content or take any coursework. It was just he was just gonna like mm-hmm. figure it out based on what he had learned to that point, and he was actually able to consolidate things. And I think from that emanated you know this like David Gray interactive stuff that you and I are both pretty stoked on. But I think it's got of like it's got to be phasic in that way. And probably like the earlier you are in your career, the more coursework you're allowed to take. But at some point you need to pull that back and just start to attempt to think for yourself, get a mentor, take Michelle's <laughs> coaching classroom. <laughs> so something like that that will help you sort of like make sense of the raw content that you've been presented.
2: Yeah. We talked about this in the Seth episode. Everyone wants, because there's just so much information, consume, consume, consume. I actually like really respect David Gray's process of just not consuming anything and just focusing on what you know and learn. That takes skills too, to kind of like dissect and move through. Um, Yeah. I'm definitely in a phase now. I'm not saying I know everything about biomechanics, but I'm like, listen, like I kind of know enough where I need to just focus on putting it into practice, I actually have other skills that I need to develop. I need to develop, you know, all the stuff we've been talking about this season, communication strategies, um, how to validate and listen to someone and also like business strategies. Like I spent a lot of time on that as well. Um, so you can't dive into just one thing at a certain point. You need to kind of step back and and just find how to how to use it better.
1: I think that, clinicians and coaches are really uncomfortable with failure. Like they see like an exercise that doesn't get the desired outcome or a program that doesn't get the desired outcome as a failure. And I think that a lot of our listeners would be much better served attempting to reframe that as just like a learning opportunity that they can try to figure out on their own versus, Mm -hmm. oh, this entire model is now wrong. Time to go learn a new one, which I think is probably one of the most disastrous mistakes like a young clinician can make is thinking that what they have learned in its entirety is useless because it didn't work on this subset of patients
2: yes and i think that kind of comes to why we built this season or theme it's like you came at it more from like a personal exploration kind of process i came from it because like i don't really suffer with chronic pain so i actually struggle with empathy towards uh, communicating with people who do um, so I really needed to kind of learn that from a, a different angle for sure okay so this is the last question if this was from someone else if I could only listen to one episode of season three what would it be
1: what would you say Michelle
2: you know, it's like I'm very biased in this, but I'd always just say Seth, Seth Obers. I just like oh, from like a friend level. And I think he brings so much to the table. And I think that episode we talked about so many different topics that you kind of get like a wide variety. Um, but I will say Sam Leffers is probably someone I learn from the most, maybe. And then your Doug Tachian, let's say his last name, right? um, episode Achija. was... Yes, was refreshing. I thought it was just, it validated a lot of my own beliefs, which I think is just as important.
1: I think Doug Kacheejan might be the most interesting man in the universe. It might be actually a (laughs) two-way tie between him and Seth, but they're interesting in very different ways. Um, We've alluded to both of these episodes already, and they were pretty early in the season. But I think Sam Leffers, for anyone that needs a little bit, anyone struggling with persistent pain that needs a little bit of a psychological reframe and how to think about like their own existence and their own like resistance to their pain. Mm -hmm. Probably if I had to pick one, it would be the same episode, but a really close second would be John Pope. And I think that the person that benefits from that episode is more like the David Goggins type where it's just like they need to be told to kind of just calm down for a second and to continue training, but to not just bash themselves, you know, into a wall. And it makes sense. Like, it's you know, Sam works with people that are in chronic pain from a psychological standpoint. And John Pope and uh, Craig Weller do Building the Elite, where they work with, you know, like special forces selection people that are literally willing to run through walls for the betterment of of this country. So it's like they they approach the same problem from very different ways, but I think if you were to listen to both um, and you're someone that's been struggling with persistent pain or you have a lot of clients that have been, you'd be in a much better spot.
2: Yeah, there you go. So listen to those episodes first and then, and then carry on for sure.
1: Hopefully you listen to this episode before you listen to <laughs> those episodes so that you know oh, which yes. episode to listen to.
2: Makes sense. <laughs> Uh perfect. Yeah. Speaking of Seth, I he's um he gave me a liver work protocol. So I'm currently microdosing B vitamins. And I have a castor oil pack on. You know what that is?
1: I I don't know any of the things that you like I know the all I know what those words mean, but
2: Yeah, well, let's just not go into that. But
1: yeah, I you, just value him. Yeah. Do you have to go get like the water from a stream that's in a forest under like a waning gibbous moon and then filter some kind of leaves through that water (laughs) basically
2: he sent me like a link for like a water filter a few years and i remember it was like a couple grand like more than that it was excessive and i was like seth like let's let's calm down here um but i do do have filtered
1: water do you have one health conspiracy theory that you're kind of interested in?
2: Oh, I'm go not going to share it. <laughs> okay. yeah, can, yeah. I go, can I go first? Fair.
1: Uh I've heard this like three or four times, and I'm starting to think there might fluorinated water <laughs> might not be the great that might not be the best thing ever. <laughs> and I don't know what to do about it.
0: <laughs> um, I, I don't. I
2: it's a lack of control thing. I don't know what to do about it.
1: Yeah. Well, and I was talking to a friend of mine and he was like, yeah, that might, they might not, that might not be the best thing ever, but apparently the filters then put something into the water that for sure isn't the best thing ever. So it's just kind of one of those, it's a very Sam Leffers type thing where it's just like, you have to accept where you currently are and that your IQ might be slightly stunted by the fact that uh, now we all have white shiny teeth and never get cavities because (laughs) at some point we decided to throw fluorine in the water.
2: Yeah. Awesome. Awesome
1: you have and no health conspiracies come on give me one
2: i can't think of it off the top of my head i mean, I mean that's no, that's a good no one. 5g you know there's a lot of cell phone towers who knows who knows what's <laughs> gonna happen
1: <laughs> i like it when they pretend to be trees yeah for sure
2: now those are the best actually you're driving on the highway and you're like oh that's a beautiful tree and like it's plastic or slash that's metal a-
1: that's that's a tree that's not even passing. That's a tree that's not even dry. That's a five G tower a, with like a green painted single shrub sticking out horizontally, and it
2: has a light up top for planes. I'm here,
1: <laughs> you know, like a tree would.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly.
1: Yeah.
2: All right, great, great end, great end to that. That was a great Q and I'm glad we got those questions.
1: Yeah, no, I, again, I appreciate everybody that, um, posted those to social media and everybody that's been on this journey with us through season three of more train, less pain. So thank you to uh, everybody that's listening.
2: Perfect. See you next episode.
1: Bye guys. If you're enjoying what Michelle and I are putting together here, we'd appreciate it. If you could leave a review on your pod player of choice. Reviews help us climb the rankings, which improves our ability to help more coaches and therapists continue to push our industry and knowledge base forward. The intro and outro music for More Train, Less Pain was produced by Jacob Azurdia. You can find out more about his music by visiting his Instagram page, J underscore Z-U-R-D-I-A. Thanks for listening.